Well, good morning. Do you know where to turn in your Bibles? Let's turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Let me just say, you all look better without a mask. Just saying. Just saying. But we understand why we have to, we have to do it. Ephesians 4, and this morning we are looking at verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10. I'm beginning verse 7 then. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Well, this morning we continue in our consideration of the subject of unity. We are done with the seven ones. It only took eight weeks. Go figure. I don't know how that happened. There was only seven ones and it took us eight weeks. But the fact that we're done with the seven ones does not mean that we're done with the subject of unity. And I think all it takes is to look around the world, look at the news, look at Facebook, look at uh, whatever media outlet, and you know that the, the number one issue going on in the world right now is division, strong, strong divisions about different topics. And so we do well to consider the words of God, the word of God, and in particular, the Apostle Paul, as he helps us navigate unity in the midst of a broken world, a divided world. But why do we insist so much on unity? Why is this such an important issue for the Apostle Paul? Well, let me address this from two angles. Positively, we could say that uh, very few things can express the character of God better than a people of God who stand united. Right? One of the greatest evidences that we actually are the people of God, that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, is that we remain united no matter what happens in the world. We can stand united as the people of God. That is the positive side. Well, negatively, we could say that we need to insist on the issue and the subject of unity because unity can be a challenge. It can be a challenge. It can be a struggle. Divisions and conflicts can come from anywhere, from unexpected places, from unexpected people within any church, within any church. There are literally countless of ways in which the enemy can bring strife and disunity and conflict among God's people. If one strategy doesn't work, he will try another one. But we need to be aware of this. Satan our enemy, he never gets tired of attacking the church. He wants to see the church divided. And brothers and sisters, let us be honest about this. There is nothing more contrary to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ than Christians divided amongst themselves. Division in the church is the best way to bring reproach on the name of Christ and the most effective way for us to lose credibility before the world. Because when we are divided, we deny the message we preach and we deny the God we say in whom we say we believe. Now, we need to also understand this. No local church is exempt from division. We need to be clear on this. No local church in no part of the world is exempt from division, strife, and conflict. We are not the exception. Therefore, this was Paul's burden for the church at Ephesus, and this is God's burden for every church around the world that we understand the deep foundations of Christian unity. So 
To whom am I speaking this morning? All of us, because we're all members of one another and we all need to be agents of unity, never of division, always agents of unity. Now this morning I have three simple headings for you that we can glean out of these few verses. Now, let me emphasize the word simple, um, simple headings. I need to be honest with you, uh, as I was reading a, a plethora of commentaries this, this week on these verses, it was anything but simple. Uh, these verses have, uh, ironically, uh, divided uh, many commentators as to what they actually mean. And so it was, it was hard to find a clear path forward as I was considering and studying, meditating on these verses, but hopefully uh, I will, I'll do the best that I can to show you what I believe these verses are communicating to us. And the first thing that these verses are communicating to us, the first truth is actually a basic truth that we all know. And it is this in your notes, if you want to follow along, unity, number one, is empowered by grace is empowered by grace. I know this is nothing new. Paul begins in verse seven says, but grace was given. Grace was given. Now his main objective, as we have, I've said this many times in the past, his main objective in the first half of chapter four of Ephesians is to speak on unity. And he will push this point further and further as he move along through these 16 verses. And in verse seven, Paul masterfully builds the foundation for unity. And he wants to bring us back to where it all starts, namely grace. Grace was given. Unity, my friends, is the work of grace. And this is something that we should never, never ever forget how is grace how is grace the empowering force behind unity how does unity can how is unity the effect of grace well think about this and and you you cannot make a mistake on this this is really the starting point we do not deserve to be christians We do not deserve to be Christians. We do not deserve to be called the children of the most high God. What you are today, Christian, is not your choice. Grace was given to you. Don't ever outgrow the awe and the wonder of the following truth. God has given you grace. God has given you grace. Don't ever become used to that truth. Don't ever become passive about that truth. Don't ever let that truth become just another thing that you believe. It is a sad thing when Christians forget what they have received. One of the greatest signs of remaining sin in our lives is this. We are quick to forget the magnitude of what God has done for us and of what being a Christian actually means. We're quick to forget God has been gracious to you. God has been gracious to me. And I submit to you that if we only took more time to reflect on the depth of the grace of God, most of our anger, most of our bitterness, most of our rivalries, and most of our strife would go away. Isn't that true? If we only took more time to reflect, to meditate, to think, to ponder upon the grace that God has given us, most of our conflicts would go away. Why? 
not only because unity is born out of grace, but also because a deeper understanding of grace will inevitably lead to the virtues that are necessary for unity, namely humility, gentleness, and patience. And I can tell you this, if you are lacking in humility, in gentleness, or patience, it could very well be because you have taken your Christianity for granted. I'm a Christian. Big deal. Maybe you have forgotten the magnitude of the grace that has actually been given to you. Maybe you have become used to the word grace. And maybe you're losing the awe and the wonder at the thought of what God has actually done for you in forgiving you of your sins, in giving you a new life. Therefore, I need to insist upon this point. I believe that one of the greatest challenges to Christian life, and in particular to Christian unity, is our own forgetfulness of, and maybe even indifference to, the grace of God. Consider with me what God's grace has done for us. What has the grace of God done for us? By grace... God predestined us for holiness before the foundation of the world. By grace, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ also before the foundation of the world. By grace, God sent forth his own son, the Lord Jesus, so that we might have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. By grace, God sealed us with the Holy Spirit for the hope of eternal salvation. By grace, God has joined us with Christ so that his life is our life. His death is our death and his resurrection is our resurrection. By grace, God has made us one so that there are no longer divisions among us. By grace, God has given us access to himself forever. And by grace, we can now walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We deserve none of that, none of it. But we have it all. We have it all by grace. Therefore, our unity is nothing more than the visible manifestation of endless gratitude for what God has done in us, for us, and through us by his grace. So are we people of grace? Yes, we are people of grace. Praise God. Therefore, we can have unity because we're people of grace. Now, number two in your notes, unity is created in diversity. Unity is created in diversity. Consider verse seven again, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. As I was writing, preparing for this sermon, I came across a definition of unity on the internet that had several parts to it. One part of that definition said this, that unity is the absence of diversity. That's exactly what it says. Unity is the absence of diversity. Well, according to the Bible, that is not a proper definition of Christian unity. In fact, the opposite is true. The Bible describes unity among Christians as a unity that is manifested primarily in wonderful diversity. Wonderful diversity. But what type of diversity? Well, according to the context, it is a diversity of gifts within the body of Christ. And Paul emphasizes this by the expression to each one of us, to each one of us. We don't need to forget our own individuality in the church. We belong to the body, but we're still individuals and unity within the church is made up of diversity. And that is a beautiful thing. We are united in Christ as we exercise a variety of gifts each one of us has been created and is being created 
after the likeness of Christ and equipped with a diversity of gifts. And we can even take this a little farther and we could say this, Christian unity thrives. Christian unity actually thrives in diversity of gifts. The diversity of gifts within the church that God has given us individually is meant to reveal something extremely important that we can never afford to forget. What is that? Well, the diversity of gifts within the church is meant to reveal God's plan for his church. And what is God's plan for his church? Here it is. Here's the, the, the heart of unity. Mutual edification. That is God's plan for his church here in the world. Mutual edification. Christian, Christian unity is made to thrive in diversity of gifts within the church because all the gifts that we have as Christians are meant to be for building up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your individual gifts are for the benefit of the entire body. So let me push this a little further still. You and I as Christians are in the business of edifying other people. Edifying other people. Mutual edification. We must build each other up, not tear each other down. That's why we come to church every Sunday. This is why we join care groups. This is why we participate in the life of the church. You want to see others edified. You see, you begin to realize that the Christian life is not primarily about you, but about being a blessing to other people. And this is why we persevere in going to church and being there on Sundays because we want to be a blessing to somebody else. We want to lift other people up. We want to edify. We want to see others established in the truth. I remember some time ago, I had a conversation with somebody. They, they gave me a call and this person expressed the fact that they had a difference of opinion with me on something. And that is completely fine, right? It's okay. It happens. It happens. Uh, one of the, the nature of public ministry is that a lot of people are going to disagree with you at some point, right? If you don't want to deal with disagreements, you shouldn't be in the ministry. But this person called me and uh, we started working through our disagreements. And we did what Christians do. We worked through those issues in humility and gentleness and patience. It was a good conversation overall. It was wonderful. Toward the end of that interaction, I said to this person, I said, you need to know that I, I appreciate the fact that you called me about this. I appreciate the fact that you talked to me about this. And here's why. You brought balance to me. That's what I said to that person. You brought balance to me. You gave me a perspective that I didn't, I didn't think through. And all this person was trying to do is they were trying to encourage me into greater and deeper faith. Greater and deeper faith. And at the end of the conversation, even though there was some disagreement remaining, I was left thinking to myself, I believe both of us were edified because of that conversation. Both of us were edified because of that conversation. And this is true. So here's something that must be said. If you are not using your Christ given gifts to edify the body, you need to repent, right? You need to repent. How can I be so bold? Well, I can be so bold because the Bible says that each one of us has received a gift. Each one of us has received a gift. There is no such thing as a giftless Christian. If you are a believer and you belong to the church, God has equipped you to be a blessing to the people around you. And if you belong to the body of Christ through faith in Jesus, then you have been given gifts that are yours for the purpose of edifying the body of Christ. And you must use those gifts to lift others up, to spur them on in their walk with Christ. But here's a, a potential objection. What if the gifts themselves become the source of jealousy and division, right? What if there's a, a, a person sitting in the pew and they want to do what I do? They want to be the one preaching. Or what if I want to be the one doing something else? What if the gifts themselves become the source of division? How are we supposed to remain united in all this diversity of gifts? Well, here's the simple answer. We remain united in our diversity of gifts because what we have, according to verse 7, 
is according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, your gifts, the things that you contribute to the overall health and benefit of the church have been sovereignly assigned to you, which is another way of saying, don't complain. Christ gave you what you have. Use it for the benefit of the people around you. The gifts for church edification that you possess are precisely that, gifts of of grace from Christ. And the measure of those gifts has been established and determined by Christ himself. You don't need to be jealous about something else, somebody else. You don't need to be jealous of me because I'm the one who gets to preach. I can let you preach for about a year, maybe, and see what you think afterwards. (laughs) See if you like it. But we have a, a diversity of gifts. And we rejoice in that. We rejoice in the diversity that the Lord has given to his church. Now, later on in verse 11, the apostle Paul, we will be more specific about those gifts. And he'll mention some of those gifts that he has given, Christ has given to the church. But we'll get there next, next Sunday. Let me go to my third point. Unity is rooted in the gospel. Shocking, isn't it? Surprise. Unity is rooted in the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news that Jesus is the savior of sinners. But saying that Jesus is the savior of sinners is, think of this, saying that Jesus is the savior of sinners is the most comprehensive statement you could ever make. What I mean by that is that the fact that Jesus saves sinners means that his work as Savior comprehends everything in the Christian life, including our unity, everything. In other words, Christian unity is a blessing that comes out of the gospel itself. And this, I believe, is Paul's point in verses 8, 9, and 10 of Ephesians chapter 4. If you read them carefully, you will come to the conclusion that these verses are an explanation of the gospel. That's what verses 8, 9, and 10 are. And so Paul is connecting unity to the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he will do this by focusing on two aspects of the work of Christ. Two aspects that summarize the work that the Lord did for us. What are the two aspects? Well, let me give you the first one. First, Christ's humiliation. Christ's humiliation. And I'm going to change the order here a little bit on how we approach these verses. I want you to look at verse 9. In saying that he, meaning Christ, ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Now, again, this is not the order in which the Apostle Paul gave us the verses, but I believe this is the the way to study them because they are, uh, I want to give them to you in, in historical chronology. Christ descended according to verse nine, Christ descended. Now we have to ask the obvious question at this point. Some of you are thinking about this question. I know what in the world are the lower regions? What are the lower regions? Uh, I told you at the beginning that there was nothing simple about studying this verse, in particular this one. There are tons of opinions out there as to what that means. Let me give you a few of the possibilities that I read about. The lower regions can be hell. He went down into hell. The lower regions can be the grave. When he died, he was put inside the grave. And another one that I found was the womb of Mary. The lower regions of the earth. Which one sounds best to you? I'll keep it simple. On this point, I actually follow the English Standard Version, the ESV version, and also John Calvin. Did you pay attention to how the ESV reads in verse 9? Read it again. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth? That's what I believe verse 9 is teaching. We could say it this way. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, 
namely the earth, namely the earth. And I believe that that's probably the best way to read verse nine. Therefore, when it says that he descended into the lower regions, meaning the earth is a reference to the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It involves everything that Christ did as a human being here on earth is a reference to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for humans on earth. I mean to say the same thing that Paul said in Philippians chapter two, verses six through eight, in which we read this, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I believe this is an explanation of what it means when Christ descended verse Nine, this is what we call Christ's humiliation. God became a man. God was born of a woman, lived in this world, suffered and died. Christ's descent includes all that he did while on earth. But for the sake of time, I'll highlight two aspects of the humiliation of Jesus or the descent of Jesus to earth. And we'll try to see how each one relates to our unity. These two are the incarnation and the death of Jesus. So let me say why this matters. Well, unity, number one, necessitates the incarnation of Jesus. Unity necessitates the incarnation of Jesus. Why? Well, consider this. The first Adam brought what? Nothing but division. The first Adam, the first man to ever live, what did he bring into the world? Division. We see this immediately after Adam and Eve fell into disobedience. Remember what happened immediately following the fall? What happened? Well, division. Eve blamed the serpent. And Adam blamed both Eve and God. And just like that, the first and the perfect marriage saw its first division, its first conflict. What do you think Eve felt like when she heard Adam say, the woman you gave me messed me up. For the first time in the history of the world, she's blamed for something. For the first time in her life, Eve probably knew what resentment and bitterness felt like. She got a taste of what it means to resent someone for what they said. And this, my friends, brings division, brings hostility, and brings conflict. I guarantee you, after the fall, Adam and Eve did not have the perfect marriage anymore. Unity as they knew it was now over and the tensions and the divisions that we experience in our own lives are the direct consequence of what happened that day in the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. This is why you and I experience conflict and strife and division. And this is why marriage takes work. And this is why unity within the church takes work. Thanks to Adam. We have a lot to talk to Adam when we get to to the presence of the Lord. Therefore, a new Adam was needed. A new Adam was needed because the first one failed. Therefore, Christ descended into the earth and we celebrate the incarnation and became a man. He became a man. Why? To fix what the first Adam destroyed. And this is the glory of the incarnation of Jesus. Whereas the first Adam brought division, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus brought reconciliation into the world. And whereas the first Adam brought hatred and war, the second Adam brought love and peace. Christ descended from heaven and into the earth and became a man in order to restore peace between God and man and between man and man. Therefore, our unity necessitates Christ's incarnation. We cannot have unity apart from the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why he descended. And this is why the Lord Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. He descended to unite. But secondly, 
Unity also demands the death of Jesus. Unity in the Christian church demands the death of Jesus. Not only does it necessitate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, but unity in the church demands that Jesus dies. What does the death of Jesus have to do with our unity as believers? It has absolutely everything to do with our unity as believers. We have already seen this, but we need to remind ourselves of of what we already know. Go to chapter 2 of Ephesians, and I want to read verses 13 through 15 quickly because we need to remember how the death of the Lord Jesus brings unity to the church. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, away from the people of God, separated from God, without hope, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is a reference to the death of the Lord Jesus. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. You see, we we need to remember this point often. Unity is, is a gift that flows out of the cross of Christ. He has accomplished unity. He has created unity. He is our peace. We don't have to go searching for unity in the world or anywhere else. Christ is our peace. He has won peace and unity for the church. And as long as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, we will remain united. We will remain united. Now, this is Christ's humiliation. But let me take you to the second aspect of the gospel, which Paul addresses in these verses. Christ's exaltation. Christ's exaltation. Consider verses 8 and 10. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What is verse eight? Well, verse eight is a quote from the Old Testament. It is a quote out of Psalm 68 verse 18, which says this, this is David speaking way before Paul. He says this, you ascended on high, speaking of God, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord may dwell there. That is interesting. Psalm 68 is a Psalm written by David. And it speaks of God's protection over his people, Israel, and God's victory over their enemies. It is a recounting of history, actual history. But the apostle Paul takes Psalm 68 verse 18, and he interprets that Psalm as ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul sees the Lord Jesus everywhere, and this psalm is no exception. Even though when David wrote this psalm, 68, he was thinking about literal history and the historical acts of God against pagan nations in an ultimate sense. Psalm 68 verse 18 was written in anticipation to and as a foreshadowing of Christ's final victory over his enemies, namely Satan, sin, death, and hell. And so Paul takes Psalm 68 and he reads the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of this Psalm. So in view of that, let me give you just three points. Unity in the church is inaugurated. Unity is inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus. Unity is inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus. Suffice it to say there cannot be any ascension without Jesus resurrecting from the dead. 
Why is the resurrection important to our unity? Well, because the resurrection of Jesus was the unleashing of God's power over all his enemies. In his resurrection, the Lord Jesus destroyed the work of Satan, the power of sin, the finality of death, and the horrors of hell. And he did this for his church, for you and for me. And now with his enemies defeated, Jesus can now establish unity among his people. He can create one new man. Now, the resurrection is the starting point, which leads me to the second stage in Christ's exaltation. And it is this. Unity is applied in the ascension of Jesus. Unity is applied in the ascension of Jesus. The text says in Ephesians 4 that Christ gave gifts to men, meaning his church, when? Well, when he ascended, when he went back to heaven after his resurrection. Do you remember what happened in the book of Acts chapter 1? Right before the Lord returns to be with his father, right before his ascension, the Lord says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And when he said these things, he was lifted up. He was lifted up. He ascended. And then, and then in, in, in Acts chapter 2, what happened? What is the, the major event of Acts chapter 2? Well, Pentecost happened. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, we find Peter saying these words. This Jesus got raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is how Christ gives gifts to his church. What is that gift? It is the gift of the spirit for it is the spirit, the one who imparts the gifts for the mutual edification of the church, the body of Christ. Now remember what we read. What is our memory verse for this month? Can anybody tell me? Is it in first Peter? What? I really need you to tell me because I don't remember right now. What is the memory verse? First Peter three, eight and nine. Okay, let's read it. I want to show you something. You guys don't believe me when I, when I ask for your help. <laughs> First Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this we are called that you may obtain a blessing. Is that it? That's all we need? A humble mind? A tender heart? Easy, right? Easy. That's all it takes for unity? We're good to go. No. No, we are sinners. Our natural tendency is not to have a humble mind or a tender heart. Things that are necessary for unity within the church this is why it is important to remember that when Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts that promote unity. What are those gifts? Well, it's the gift of the spirit and he promotes humility. He's the only one who can give us a tender heart. Without the spirit, there is no possibility of unity. So therefore the ascension of Jesus is critical for our unity because when he ascended, he sent the gift of the spirit and now we can exercise the virtues that are needed for unity. And I can be patient with you and you can be patient with me and you can exercise a tender heart toward me and I can do the same for you and I can have humility toward you and you can have humility toward me. Why? Because when Christ ascended, he gave us the spirit 
And now unity is possible. Apart from the spirit, we cannot exhibit any of these virtues. Remember what Ephesians 4, 3 says, our unity is the unity of the spirit. It is the unity of the spirit. So the ascension of Jesus was the descent of the spirit. And finally, unity is secured in the intercession of Jesus. Unity is secured in the intercession of Jesus. We're considering the exaltation of the Lord Jesus when he ascended on high. What is the Lord Jesus doing for his church right now? We know that he came, became a man, incarnation. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death on a cross. He was buried. And then on the, th- on the third day, he rose again. And then he ascended on high and he gave gifts. He sent the Holy Spirit. But his work for the church, his ministry for the church has not ended. It hasn't stopped It didn't stop when he ascended. He continues to do something for us, for his church. What is Jesus doing in heaven as we speak right now? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, our exalted Lord always lives to make intercession for us. He's making intercession for us. What is this intercession that Jesus is making for his church? What is Jesus asking the father on our behalf? When I first started preaching through the seven ones, I made repeated references to the prayer of Jesus found in John chapter 17. Why did I do that? Well, I did that because it is, it is an astonishing thing to know that right before he died, One of the last things that the Lord Jesus prayed for before his death was that we may be one. It's astonishing to think that as the Lord Jesus was considering his own death, the thought that was in his mind and what he asked God for the father was that we Christians will remain united. John 17 is a prayer of unity. In his commentary on the book of Hebrews, the great Puritan John Owen said that the best representation of Christ's present intercession for us in heaven is the prayer recorded in John 17. And I believe that he is correct. The Lord Jesus and the Father are one. What do you think the Lord Jesus is interceding for us? What is he asking the Lord to do for us? That we will reflect the character of God. That we will also be one. This is the desire of the Lord Jesus for his church. So let us rest assured that the Father will answer Christ's intercession for us. And here's where we rest our hope. No amount of sin, no amount of corruption in the world can ultimately separate us from one another or from God. Because Jesus is interceding for us that we may be one. So my confidence for the unity of this church or any church lies in the fact that this is God's desire for his church. And the Lord, the father will answer the requests of his son that we be one both now and forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that unity has been guaranteed by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his descent upon earth, his incarnation, his coming, has been the work by which you have guaranteed our unity. And then his ascension, also the work of Christ, guarantees our unity. We thank you that we can remain united 
even if the world is falling apart, even if sexual immorality continues to go forth, even if there are divisions everywhere around us, we can be united because our unity is rooted upon the work of the Lord Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension and intercession for us. So help us, Lord, to remain focused on Christ, to keep our eyes fixed on him, that he might fill all things. We give you the praise and the glory for your word. I pray that you will use this sermon, imperfect though it was, to bring about conviction into our lives and to draw us closer to you and to strengthen our unity here on earth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in light of what we just heard, let us confess together that all we have is Christ. Let us sing to our Lord. i
Let's uh, lift up our voices and sing that one more time. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. One more time. Hallelujah. benediction. Today's benediction comes from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace with believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You are dismissed.